Welcome to the July Dermalogic Surgery Digest podcast and Beyond the Digest supplemental podcast. I am the podcast editor, Naomi Lawrence. In this month's journal, there is a randomized, multi-center, evaluator-blinded study to evaluate the safety and effectiveness of a hyaluronic acid filler with Bicrust technology, which showed improvement of skin quality and texture for six months post-treatment. There is also a brief communication on the National Cancer Database, which showed that there was no significant difference in five-year all-cause survival for patients with melanoma treated with Mohs micrographic surgery performed with narrow versus wide margins. In Beyond the Digest this month, I want to highlight an article reviewed by my graduating fellow, Yesel Kim. In it, clinical factors associated with skin neoplasms in individuals with Lynch syndrome, which is a longitudinal observational cohort study that highlights the importance of skin surveillance for all Lynch syndrome carriers. I also want to welcome all of the new Dermalogic residents and fellows listening to the podcast this month. I hope that we can enhance your learning experience. Thank you for listening and have a happy surgery day. This segment of the episode features surgical oncology and reconstructive article reviews. This is Erica Levitt reviewing the original article, Mohs Micrographic Surgery with Digital Pathology Improves Surgical Quality and Efficiency, a Retrospective Cohort by authors Mi Yuan Chu and Jihee Kim. The paper is a review of records from 80 Mohs patients at a single hospital in Korea that has converted its pathology system to be fully digitized. Data from 57 Mohs cases using digital pathology were compared to 23 cases using conventional pathology. The authors found that the cases using digital pathology had shorter times between Mohs stages. However, at the author's institution, they described that for conventional pathology, surgeons would travel to the pathology department to review the slides. Thus, although digital pathology requires the extra step of scanning the slides, the surgeon saves time by not relocating. This may not be generalizable to all clinics, as at least here, many Mohs suites have the lab and microscope in the office, just steps from the operating rooms. It is thus unclear whether digital pathology would increase efficiency in these settings. The authors then report that the cases with digital pathology had a lower mean number of Mohs stages and suggest that this result implies that digital pathology is more accurate. It is not explained why they equate fewer Mohs stages with increased accuracy. As to my understanding, the total number of Mohs stages relates most to the particular tumor biology and characteristics, and a case with a low number of Mohs stages does not mean that the Mohs technique was more accurate for that case. Furthermore, it is not explained why this would be related to the digital pathology technique and not just coincidental characteristics of their small sample. Similarly, the authors report that digital pathology has a higher ratio of switching from a positive tumor margin to a free margin and a lower average defect size, but again do not provide justification for why these findings would be related to the digital pathology technique. Overall, this study has several limitations as mentioned above, but in the future it would be interesting to see if digital pathology does increase speed and efficiency between Mohs layers across various different practice settings. 
This is Jordan Lim reviewing the original article, Results of a National Survey on the Definition of Surgical Site Infections Following Mohs Micrographic Surgery by Ailish Hanley, Vijaya Daniel, and Basil Mahmood. Surgical site infections have been described as the most frequent complication in Mohs surgery. However, within the literature, its definition varies. As such, this lack of consensus on the definition of a surgical site infection after Mohs surgery makes it difficult to assess the true prevalence of this complication. The purpose of this study was to determine how Mohs surgeons in the United States define surgical site infections after Mohs surgery. An anonymous survey was delivered through the American College of Mohs Surgery, providing varying surgical scenarios to delineate the definition of a surgical site infection. 79 Mohs surgeons, representing 5.3% of those queried, responded to the survey. Characteristics that most Mohs surgeons felt were most consistent with surgical site infections included warmth, swelling, erythema, pain, and fever. Purulent discharge and those with positive cultures for Staphylococcus aureus were features most universally agreed upon to be consistent with surgical site infection by those surveyed. No consensus was reached regarding timing of surgical site infection. Most Mohs surgeons reported that they do not require positive culture to diagnose these infections. They do not have a standard definition of surgical site infection in their practice and they are not familiar with the CDC definition of surgical site infection. This study was limited by its survey design as this may have consciously or unconsciously skewed responses. In addition, all potential scenarios could not be covered in the survey and the response rate of only 5.3% was low, possibly limiting its generalizability of these findings. The authors propose that from this data, the definition of surgical site infection post Mohs surgery should include presentation of warmth, erythema, pain, and swelling within 14 days postoperatively, or the presence of a positive wound culture. This study highlights that many Mohs surgeons have similar requirements for identification of a surgical site infection. However, there remains no standard definition for this field. To optimize patient care, infection prevention, cost effectiveness, and outcome metrics for Mohs surgery, defining this entity is crucial. This is Christy Rugula, reviewing well-being and professional fulfillment in Mohs surgeons, an explanatory sequential mixed method design study by first author Charlene Lamb and senior author Tate Shenefelt. Physician well-being is essential to a successful healthcare system. This encompasses both personal and professional aspects of their lives. Professional fulfillment defined as achieving meaningfulness, self-worth, self-efficacy, and satisfaction at work is a key determinant of physician well-being. A previous study by the authors from 2021 surveyed most surgeons and found the prevalence of burnout to be 46%. This is a follow-up study to explore factors that drive occupational distress and promote well-being among most surgeons. A poll of 135 respondents from the previous quantitative study were asked to be in this qualitative phase. The first 33 who volunteered were included. These individuals underwent a semi-structured interview that was conducted to explore well-being and burnout. 
Audio recordings were then transcribed and analyzed to identify common themes. The majority of participants did have symptoms of burnout. Themes identified in the analysis include, number one, gratitude for the chosen profession. Number two, unrealistic standards of perfection that may have contributed to past career success, but are unattainable and create emotional burden. And number three, ability to practice in a manner aligned with personal values that promotes professional fulfillment. Ultimately, the study suggests that gratitude, self-compassion, and the ability to practice in a manner aligned with personal values promote well-being and professional fulfillment in most surgeons. Notably, the study found that unrealistic standards of perfection and personal organization practice incongruencies contribute to burnout. This is Jordan Lim reviewing the reconstructive conundrum, a large defect of the upper arm and elbow exposing humerus bone by authors Scott Malberg, Danielle Yeager, and Jeremy Bordeaux. The reconstructive conundrum presents a case of a 10 by 7.5 centimeter basal cell carcinoma on the left distal upper arm. After most surgery, the defect measured 13 by 10 centimeters extending to the bone cortex of the humerus. The defect was significant and I would refer you to the article for photographs. This case presented many challenges, including covering the exposed bone cortex, maintaining range of movement at the elbow joint, and replacing depth of tissue loss. This repair combined two Burroughs full thickness skin grafts and an underlying Burroughs adipose graft to recreate the arm contour and protect the exposed bone. At one year follow-up, the patient had full use of the elbow with no limitations. I would encourage you to refer to the article for a more detailed description of the repair. This is Michael Renzi reviewing the reconstructive conundrum, a novel technique for the correction of post-surgical alar notching by first author Jacqueline Rosenthal-Hamillis and senior author Desiree Ratner. An 82-year-old albino woman underwent four stages of Mohs surgery for a basal cell carcinoma on the left nasal tip. The postoperative defect measured 3.4 by 2.6 centimeters and resulted in loss of soft tissue and cartilage of the left nasal tip, dorsum, sidewall, and ala. After the patient declined a perimedian forehead flap, a full thickness skin graft with underlying cartilage graft was performed. Graft necrosis and a subsequent hypertrophic scar developed along with alar notching. A subsequent revision was performed using another cartilage graft and a cheek interpolation flap. However, there was focal necrosis at the alar rim, which again resulted in alar notching. After taking into consideration the patient's alar asymmetry, retraction, and scarring of the left ala, history of graft necrosis, the technique of alar sharing using a composite graft from the contralateral ala was deemed to be the best reconstructive option. In a one-stage approach, nasal alar tissue was redistributed from the unaffected wider ala to the retracted ala. As a result, the notched tissue was replaced, alar architecture was restored, and alar and facial symmetry were reestablished. I would like to refer the listeners to the article for the details of this reconstruction. Clinical outcome at six months can be seen in figure four. This is Erica Levitt reviewing the communication no survival benefit with wide margin Mohs micrographic surgery for melanoma, a national cancer database analysis by Keegan O'Hearn and Addison Demmer. 
This was a retrospective analysis of the National Cancer Database of 9,800 patients with MIS or invasive melanoma who underwent Mohs surgery between 2004 and 2019. The authors compared survival among cases with narrow surgical margins as defined as less than or equal to one centimeter with wide margins greater than one centimeter. When controlling for confounders, including patient age, sex, insurance status, comorbidity status, tumor histology, location, disease stage, and Breslau depth, there was no significant difference in five-year overall survival among patients treated with Mohs with wide versus narrow margins. The five-year all-cause survival rate was around 93% for both groups. The authors acknowledged the limitations of the retrospective data and Mohs margin reporting in the National Cancer Database, but this study highlights that the topic of the best starting margin for Mohs for melanoma should be a topic of future prospective research, and wide margins greater than one centimeter may not be necessary. This is Erica Levitt reviewing the communication Patients Experience with Amiquamod for Extramammary Paget Disease by Jun Yao Long and Paul Chung. This was an online questionnaire study sent to an online EMPD support group, limiting responses to those that had been prescribed Amiquamod at some point during their disease course. The results highlighted the absence of standardized protocols for Amiquamod use, as responses greatly varied in the frequency and duration of treatment. There was also wide variation in the presence and timing of biopsies of the EMPD site after treatment to confirm remission, and wide variation in additional treatment modalities used after Miquimod. Overall, 43% of respondents went into remission after treatment, of which 84% remained in remission for an average of 23 months. The questionnaire results highlight that more standardized treatment protocols and consensus guidelines are necessary for Miquimod treatment in EMPD, as the disease can carry significant morbidity and have high recurrence rates if inadequately treated. This is Michael Renzi reviewing the communication short-term and long-term effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on a referral-based Mohs micrographic surgery private practice by first author Christian Schaff and senior author Richard Bennett. The COVID-19 pandemic disrupted Mohs practices, and while previous studies examined the short-term effects in the academic setting, the impact on private practices is unknown. The authors of this communication evaluated changes in case volume and tumor severity among keratinocytic carcinomas treated with Mohs from six months before the pandemic until two years after. They retrospectively analyzed 1,625 consecutive basal and squamous cell carcinomas treated with Mohs at a Santa Monica practice from September 19, 2019 to March 18, 2020. Tumor frequency and severity were compared before and after the stay-at-home order in California. Cases were analyzed in five, six-month time intervals. Tumor severity was assessed by approximate final defect area, meaning greatest length by greatest width, final most stage number, and most appropriate use criteria score. The results showed a decline in case volume seen during periods two and three, which coincide with the first two surges of the COVID-19 pandemic during spring and winter 2020. The mean total stage number and AUC score remained consistent across all five periods across all tumor types. The mean postoperative defect size increased for all tumor types from 3.86 centimeters squared in the pre-pandemic period to 4.3 centimeters squared in period two, though this was not statistically significant. This, the defect size increased again in period three to 4.6 centimeters squared, and this was significant. 
the mean post-operative defect size in period four returned to the pre-pandemic level of 3.77 centimeters squared, but then jumped back to 4.6 centimeters squared in period five. Overall, while this was limited to a single private practice, these findings suggest that persistent patient hesitancy and adherence to COVID-19 pandemic guidelines affected keratinocyte tumor severity and Mohs case volumes. This is Deirdre Connolly reviewing the communication melanoma antigen recognized by T-cells with blue chromogen improves identification of melanocytes from background melanized keratinocytes on frozen section. First author, Justin Fazio, senior author, John Zatelli. Melanoma antigen recognized by T-cells, or MART-1, is a widely used immunohistochemical stain by most surgeons for identification of melanoma and melanocytes on frozen section. It is most often processed with a bronze chromogen called diaminobenzidine, or DAB. The challenge with the bronze chromogen is that targeted melanocytes appear bronze, whereas adjacent keratinocytes retain their similar appearing brown melanin. The use of bronze chromogen can cause false interpretation of melanocyte hyperplasia in the presence of heavily melanized keratinocytes, melanophages, and melanin. Authors use a manufacturer-labeled chromogen, HRP green. Despite the name, it appears more blue than green on frozen section. The blue chromogen is equally commercially available compared with other chromogens and does not change frozen section IHC protocol time. However, the blue stain does fade over time with usual mounting medium. Instead, authors use fast chromoprotector to dehydrate and protect the chromogen from fading, and then use Zygreen Perma Mounter to mount cover slip. In addition, the blue chromogen can be used with all inking colors while taking and marking Mohs layers without an issue. The figures in this communication are definitely worth viewing. They compare the blue chromogen with the widely used DAB bronze chromogen, and it definitely appears that the blue chromogen allows for better localization of melanocytes within the epidermis. A second figure shows how the blue chromogen does not stain dermal melanophages as it might with bronze chromogen, avoiding some diagnostic pitfalls. To sum up, DAB chromogen is commonly used in MART-1 staining protocols, but can be difficult to differentiate from native melanin. Blue chromogen is an alternative that allows for improved and efficient identification of melanocytes and melanoma from melanin background noise. This is Deirdre Connolly reviewing the communication perineural invasion in cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma in a cohort of renal transplant patients versus immunocompetent patients, the Irish experience. Authors performed a small cohort study out of Ireland comparing rates of perineural invasion in cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma in renal transplant recipients against a cohort of immunocompetent patients in the Irish National Kidney Transplant Center, reflecting the Republic of Ireland, which encompasses Southern Ireland. Records identified all 45 renal transplant recipient patients diagnosed with cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma in 2019. A similar number of immunocompetent patients with squamous cell carcinoma were also selected. Perineural invasion was determined on full excisional specimens. All patients were Fitzpatrick skin types 1 or 2 in both cohorts, and men comprised the majority of patients in each cohort. 
the median age of renal transplant recipient cohort was significantly younger than the immunocompetent cohort, 71 years of age versus 79 years of age. Evidence of perineural invasion was seen significantly more frequently in the renal transplant cohort, or 20% of that group, compared with 4% of immunocompetent patients. Thus, transplant recipients were five times more likely to have evidence of perineural invasion on their histology. Clinical follow-up until January of 2022 was recorded for all patients in both cohorts. In the transplant cohort, 9% had evidence of local tumor recurrence, and three out of four of those patients with local recurrence had evidence of perineural invasion on initial tumor histology. There were two metastases and one disease-related death in the transplant cohort. No local tumor recurrence or death was noted in the immunocompetent cohort with perineural invasion, although one patient had metastasis treated with completion lymph node dissection. There was no significant difference in the rates of local recurrence, metastasis, or death between the two cohorts. It's difficult to draw conclusions from this small cohort study, but it seems to corroborate prior studies showing higher rates of perineural invasion in immunosuppressed patients. This segment of the episode features general dermatologic surgery and cosmetic article reviews. This is Deirdre Connolly reviewing the original investigation, The Role of Excision for Treatment of Chromoblastomycosis, a cutaneous fungal infection frequently mistaken for squamous cell carcinoma. First author, Alyssa Roland, senior author, Catherine Bodford. Authors aim to collect and examine data pertaining to the clinical presentation and management of patients with chromoblastomycosis, which is an uncommon fungal infection of the skin caused by a variety of dermatitious or pigmented fungal species, typically contracted through direct inoculation into the skin. This fungal infection is more frequently observed in tropical and subtropical regions, particularly among adult men with a history of working in rural areas, likely due to exposure with an increased risk of contraction via traumatic implantation of the fungus into the skin from splinters, thorns, or decaying plants. As a nod to dermatology residency, the most common causative species are Foncesia, Cladophyllophora, and Rhinocladula. Chromoblastomycosis commonly presents on the skin of the extremity as verrucous nodules or plaques with the potential to ulcerate. Therefore, chromoblastomycosis can clinically be suspected to be squamous cell carcinoma. Histopathology shows pseudoepitheliomatous hyperplasia, which can also mimic squamous cell carcinoma. A retrospective study was performed at a single institution over a 16-year period, and a total of nine patients were identified, eight of whom were male. Seven of the nine cases occurred in solid organ transplant patients. All cases were located on the extremities, both upper and lower. Most patients presented with an asymptomatic scaly pink plaque or dome-shaped papule. Six of the nine cases were suspected to be squamous cell carcinoma. All nine specimens revealed histology consistent with chromomycosis, including pseudoepitheliomatous hyperplasia with granulomatous and separative inflammation surrounding the diagnostic pigmented sclerotic bodies. 
Interestingly, three out of the seven fungal cultures performed provided false negative results. Seven of the nine cases were treated with excision, and six of the nine patients were treated with oral antifungal medication. Four of these nine patients received combination therapy. As for long-term outcomes, eight of the nine patients had no recurrence of the disease, and one patient was lost to follow-up. In summary, immunosuppression is likely a risk factor for the development of chromoblastomycosis, and lesions can mimic squamous cell carcinoma. In most cases, surgical excision can play a role. However, oral antifungal therapy may have a benefit as well, particularly to prevent dissemination in immunosuppressed patients. This is Michael Renzi reviewing trigeminocardiac reflex, a review and key implications to dermatologic surgery by first author Emily Poe and senior author Cameron Chestnut. A trigeminocardiac reflex is a common but underreported occurrence that can vary from benign to life-threatening. The authors of this article sought to provide a review of potential stimuli for this reflex within dermatologic surgery and discuss management options. Definition of the trigeminocardiac reflex is variable in the literature, with most definitions involving a physical or chemical stimulation of the trigeminal nerve, leading to subsequent hemodynamic changes, including a decrease in heart rate and mean arterial blood pressure by more than 20% compared to baseline values. Other definitions describe 10% decline in blood pressure baseline, an absolute blood pressure reading below 90 over 60, or bradycardia. The most common eliciting stimuli of trigeminocardiac reflex are globe pressure, traction of the extraocular muscles, regional trigeminal aesthetic blocks, and other procedures with mechanical trigeminal stimulation. The trigeminocardiac reflex most often affects young individuals. The highest incidence of the reflex is among 1 to 18-year-olds at an incidence of 10% with peripheral trigeminal nerve stimulation. Other well-defined predictors and risk factors for developing trigeminocardiac reflex include specific medial rectus muscle manipulation, direct pressure to globe or other ocular manipulation, retrobulbar blocks, active facial trauma, orbital floor fracture, strabismus surgery, detached retinal surgery, hypoxemia or hypercarbia, and concurrent use of opioids, beta blockers, and calcium channel blockers. Common procedures which pose an assumed risk to stimulate a trigeminocardiac reflex include Mohs micrographic surgery, other periocular surgical procedures, cosmetic blepharoplasty, injectables, laser procedures, and even biopsies. Patients with a triggered trigeminocardiac reflex may have a wide range of symptoms and complications. Those specifically seen in dermatologic surgery are severe bradycardia, respiratory distress, labored breathing, and asystole. Dizziness or lightheadedness, nausea, and gastric hypermobility may be the first presenting symptoms and can make it difficult to differentiate from a vasovagal episode. Differentiation of the two similar constellations is vital because the direct nature of the trigeminocardiac reflex predisposes the patient to having a faster onset and more significant physiologic decompensation. There is little evidence for effective prevention of trigeminocardiac reflex in patients requiring cyst 
systemic anesthesia, ensuring depth of anesthesia and choosing a medication such as a halogen or ketamine may reduce the risk of the reflex compared to use with propofol. Treatment of the trigeminocardiac reflex should consist of immediate cessation of any stimulus and monitoring for hemodynamic instability, symptomatic management, and anesthetic adjustment if applicable. Glycopyrrolate or atropine may be considered if the patient is having hemodynamic complications that are resistant to conservative measures. I was not aware of this reflex prior to reading this article and appreciate the author's the review, I look forward to additional research that will further elucidate the reflex and prophylaxis and treatment options available to outpatient proceduralists. This is Christy Regula reviewing ultra-thin skin grafting versus suction blister epidermal grafting in the treatment of resistant stable vitiligo, a self-controlled comparative study by first author Zanlan Ding and senior author Wan Du. Resistant stable vitiligo is difficult to improve using medical therapies. Often, surgical therapies are effective methods that can achieve quick results. These techniques include both tissue grafting and cellular grafting. The most common types of tissue grafting used to treat vitiligo is suction blister epidermal grafting because it achieves excellent repigmentation. Another tissue grafting technique is ultra-thin skin grafting, which is a modification of split-thickness skin grafting, where a very thin skin graft composed entirely of the dermis without any dermal tissue is transplanted on the vitiligo lesion and has shown to have good results. This self-controlled study compares the efficacy and safety of these two techniques. 15 patients with a total of 45 vitiligo patches participated in the study. They each had stable vitiligo patches of greater than four centimeters in diameter, which had been stable for at least one year. The vitiligo patch was divided into two halves. One half was treated with each technique. I will refer you to the article for detailed descriptions of each technique performed. Follow-up exams took place at one, two, and three months after grafting. The repigmentation was graded on percentage repigmented, with excellent repigmentation being greater than or equal to 75%. Excellent repigmentation was observed in 97.8% of patches that underwent ultra-thin skin grafting and 93.3% that underwent suction blister epidermal grafting. Adverse events included incomplete fall-off of the graft at the donor site in 4.4% of patches that underwent ultra-thin skin grafting whereas a cobblestone appearance was observed in 66.7% of patches that underwent suction blister epidermal grafting. And ultra-thin skin grafting caused fewer complications at the donor site than did suction blister epidermal grafting. This is Monica Bowen, and I'll be discussing a new powder dressing for management of chronic venous ulcers by first author, Dr. Abdul Rahim, and last author, Dr. Abdul Maksud. Chronic venous ulcers affect about 1% of the population, and etiology is due to venous hypertension, impaired microcirculation, and activation of local inflammatory mediators. Standard management includes compression bandages and other topicals. In this study, a new agent is investigated, a transforming powder dressing, TPD, which contains a methylacrylate-based formulation that transforms in situ into a shape-retentive matrix upon hydration to create a moist wound healing environment. 
and then the one of the actives is polyhydroxylmethylacrylate. So this was a randomized controlled perspective study conducted in Cairo, Egypt, and patients were randomized to transporting powder dressing and standard dressing, which was a compression dressing. Primary study outcome was complete ulcer healing at 12 and 24 weeks and time to complete ulcer healing. A total of 60 patients with chronic venous ulcers were included in the study. Patients in the transforming powder dressing group had higher rates of completion of ulcer healing at 12 weeks. So in the dressing, in the TP dressing group, it was about 43% had complete ulcer clearance at 12 weeks, while only 10% in control. And at 24 weeks, the TP dressing had 86.7% complete ulcer healing and only 40% in control. So the patients in the TP dressing group had shorter healing times, and these were all statistically significant. There was also a reduction in pain in the TP dressing group. So this is the first randomized study to show the healing benefits of this transforming powder dressing. Previous studies also showed excellent healing with the TP dressing in some Mohs cases. The mechanism of action of this transforming powder dressing is to provide wound oxygenation by the highly porous dressing created by the polymer particles and secondarily, a disinfected wound environment. The polymer microspheres, micropores, constitute a mechanical barrier against microorganisms. Interestingly, there is also a significant reduction in ulcer pain in the transforming powder dressing. This is Megan McLean discussing the review article, Pediatric Keloids and the Review of Efficacy of Curtain Treatment Modalities by Jonathan Hirsch, Christy Waterman, and Roger Haber. Keloids and hypertrophic scars form as a result of excessive fibroblast proliferation and collagen deposition in an abnormal wound healing process after an injury to the skin. There is thought to be a genetic predisposition to the development of keloids. Treatment is often challenging and may include pressure dressing, occlusive dressing, intralesional steroids, surgical excision, laser, radiotherapy, and others. Recurrence rates are high. Few studies have focused on keloids in children. This review article sought to assess treatment outcomes of keloids in a pediatric population. A literature review was performed using PubMed and the search terms keloids or hypertrophic scars and pediatrics and screened to include those papers that focused on treatment outcomes. Due to the scarcity of studies found, case reports and series were included in analysis and thus overall grade for conclusions drawn from this review is B or C. 13 studies were identified detailing 544 Five keloids in 482 patients. Demographic data was missing in many studies. In those studies that had age breakdowns, the average age of patients with keloids was 6.6 years old. 64% of the patients were female. The most common cause of keloid was piercing, followed by burn, trauma, surgery, and other. The most common lesion location was the ear, followed by extremities, trunk, genitals, and other. The average age of treatment was 12.9 years old. 24% of patients received single modality treatment with surgical excision and intralesional steroid being most common. 76% of patients received multimodal therapy with surgical excision plus steroid injection being most common. 
Measurement of outcomes varied widely among the studies. In studies that did report outcomes, good outcomes were seen in 90% of patients, excluding those lost to follow-up and with recurrences. Recurrence was noted in 16.1% of patients treated with multimodal therapies and in 30.4% of patients treated with surgical monotherapy. However, some individual studies mentioned in this review did not support the superiority of multimodal therapy over monotherapy. Given the paucity of papers and heterogeneity between them, it is difficult to draw clear conclusions from this review. It's unclear whether the female predominance of keloids in this and another study mentioned has a true biological cause or if it is related to the fact that many keloids appear after piercing, which is socially more common in females. As response to varying treatments in these studies was often reported as conglomerated data, it was difficult to make clear conclusions regarding efficacy of various treatments. Additional studies with more robust demographic data, objective outcome measures, and clear delineation of treatment groups may help to shine more light on this challenging condition. This is Ardalan Menotete discussing the manuscript Evaluation of a Novel Graft-Holding Solution in Hair Transplantation, a Randomized Controlled Clinical Study. The authors describe that commonly for hair transplantation, grafts are stored in a chilled ringer solution which is isotonic and they describe as unsuitable for long-term organ preservation. We know hair transplantation procedures can last a long time. And despite the long-term graft survival, shedding in the post-operative period can occur and increase anxiety for patients and lead to less ideal clinical appearance post-procedure. There is basic science evidence that ATP and scavengers of oxygen radicals are protective for hair follicles after a transplant. And the authors describe a solution known as HTK or histidine tryptophan ketoglutarate solution, which is mixed with ATP and DRO or deferoxamine, which is an iron chelator as the solution that they treated the patients in this study. This HTKAD solution versus Ringer solution trial involved 240 patients for which follicles were placed either in the Ringer solution or the HTKAD solution. The results showed in histologic analyses that those treated with the HTKAD solution had more organized dense collagen and the normal cell structure was retained as opposed to what they described as a softer appearance in those with the Ringer solution. Statistical analyses showed that those patients for whom grafts were stored in the HTKAD solution they had reduced post-surgical hair shedding, namely 73.81% versus 95% who had the ringer solution. Those also had delayed shedding onset and there was diminished shedding amount, a diminished shedding amount noticed when greater than or equal to 3,000 grafts were transplanted. There was no difference in graft survival rate between the two groups, but the authors did note that use of this HTKAD solution really did alleviate post-surgical shedding. They noted that this is an early study that would implicate 
future studies looking to see specific mechanisms and effects of graft survival and viability and decreases in shedding when stored in the HGKAD solution. This is Deirdre Hooper reviewing the original article, a randomized multi-center evaluator blind study to evaluate the safety and effectiveness of Vicross 12L treatment for skin quality improvement by first author Mekrane Alexiadis and lead author Smita Shola. So this looked at an investigational Vicross technology HA filler with a very low concentration of HA at 12 milligrams per ml. Eligible patients were healthy adults rated as moderate or severe on the Allergan Cheek Skin Smoothness Scale. Exclusion criteria included any cosmetic procedures within 12 months of screening and any topical or oral anti-wrinkle products that were begun within 30 days of screening. 195 subjects were treated. The majority were Caucasian females around 50 years of age, and the treatment was multiple intradermal micro-depot injections to both cheeks with an optional touch-up at month one. Total injection volume and injection spacing were determined by the treating investigator. The median total volume injected for initial and touch-up treatments combined was 4 mLs for both cheeks. There is a substantial amount of supplemental data available for your reference if you go to the paper. But briefly, the primary endpoint was that blinded evaluators live assess change in cheek skin smoothness at month one. The responder rate was 57.9% with a median change of one point in the five point scale. Secondary endpoints of fine line improvement were achieved in 58% of the treated group and moisture measurements increased in the treatment group. And all of these results were maintained through month six. As far as safety, at least one injection site reaction was reported by 81.5% of subjects in the first month. The majority were mild or moderate and resolved within seven days. Lumps or bumps that persisted more than 30 days after injection occurred in 8.9% of patients after the initial treatment and in 5% after repeat treatment. One subject had two papules with onset 117 days after touch-up treatment. These were considered treatment-related adverse events and did resolve by study end without treatment. There were no treatment-related serious AEs. In the discussion, the authors point out that responder rates and skin smoothness appear lower than previously published studies of this product, and this may be due to methodological considerations, and they emphasize that the responder rate is still highly statistically significant. Limitations of the studies include low numbers of male and darker skin phototype subjects. So in conclusion, Vicross 12 produces improvement in skin quality as assessed by facial skin smoothness, fine lines, and skin hydration, and these improvements lasted through six months. This is Isabella Jones reviewing safety and efficacy of a novel, variable-sequenced, long-pulsed 532 and 1064 nanometer laser with cryogen spray cooling for pigmented and vascular lesions by Wong and Kilmer. This is a study on the first long-pulsed KTP and NDAG laser that uses cryogen cooling. The specific device, known as Derma-V, is the first one to use cryogen spray rather than contact cooling in the realm of KTP and NDAG lasers. 
they aim to study its efficacy and safety for vascular and pigmented lesions. 23 subjects, mostly women with a mean age of 53, with skin types 2 through 4 were enrolled. Vascular lesions were present in about uh, 40% of patients, pigmented lesions in 17% of patients, and 43% had both types of lesions. All subjects were treated with the 532 nanometer wavelength, and four were also treated with the 1064 nanometer wavelength. The, ne- the mean number of treatments was 3.5, with a median of four weeks between sessions. Most of the treatments were performed on the face, but some were also on the neck, chest, hands, and lower extremities. The settings used are mentioned in the article. For both vascular and pigmented lesions, the study showed successful endpoints using photograph review by four blinded physicians, the Global Aesthetic Improvement Scale, and patient satisfaction. Overall, 87% of patients were responders, meaning that at least three or four reviewers agreed. No serious adverse events occurred, and pain was rated at 2.6 out of 10 with no topical or local anesthesia. The authors argue that this is a safe and effective laser for treating vascular and pigmented lesions in skin types 2 through 4. They also point out that this in the specific device, the spot size is up to 16 millimeters, and it also has a rolling smart tip to allow for predetermined speed and overlap of pulses. Hi everyone, my name is Dr. Kernlal and I will be reviewing Evaluating Public Perceptions of Cosmetic Procedures in the Medical Spa and Physician's Office Settings, a large-scale survey by senior author Rajiv Nijawan. There is and continues to be a rising demand for cosmetic procedures. Due to this growth and need, medical spas have become popularized in the United States. There is very little regulation regarding medical spas with different laws for different states. This study sought to understand how the U.S. public perceives medical spas and physicians' offices as places to receive cosmetic procedures with a focus on safety. Using online surveys, 1,108 patients were surveyed. The survey included participants who had received cosmetic procedures at physicians' offices only, at medical spas only, at physicians' offices and medical spas, and those who had never had a cosmetic procedure. There were 43 respondents who had received a cosmetic procedure at a medical spa only, 80 at a physician's office only, 21 at a medical spa and physician's office, and 494 who had never had a cosmetic procedure. Respondents who had never had a cosmetic procedure or had only received them at a physician's office had the least confidence in the safety of medical spas compared to other groups. Those who had never received a cosmetic procedure had the least confidence in the safety of physicians' offices, whereas those who had received procedures at physicians' offices only had the greatest confidence in receiving cosmetic procedures at a physician's office. Respondents who received a cosmetic procedure at a physician's office only or had never received a cosmetic procedure rated the importance of safety of the procedure higher than other groups. There was no statistically significant difference in the overall complication rate at medical spas compared with physicians' offices, although medical spas had a numerically greater complication rate. Minimally invasive skin tightening had a significantly higher complication rate at 77% at medical spas compared with 0% at physicians' offices. And non-surgical fat reduction had a complication rate of 80% at medical spas and 36% 36 at physicians' offices. At a physician's office, a physician reviewed the consent form with the patient in 27 
97% of cases compared with 18% in medical spas. This study demonstrated that the most of the public, and especially the public who had not received a cosmetic procedure at a medical spa, believe physicians' offices to be safer for cosmetic procedures. This study was limited by its selection bias. Hello everyone, I'm Kern Lal and I will be reviewing how we do it, our method for triamcinolone injections of acne keloidalis nuke. In this commentary, this group recommends injection of 0.1 ml aliquots into the deep dermis in the nuclear region of ILK 5 to 10 milligrams per ml. They propose treating the active and inactive areas leads to faster clinical remission. They present a case of a 24-year-old Fitzpatrick 5 man with AKN who was treated with one round of deep dermal injections of triamcinolone 5 milligrams per ml. The clinician injected a total volume of 1.4 mLs. The patient only applied topical clindamycin daily as needed. The patient's AKN improved dramatically after just one session as seen in figure one. This concept relies on information from prior studies which showed perilesional skin has histologic evidence of inflammation. I agree with this technique and use a similar approach with broad coverage. Unlike alopecia areata, I do think higher doses may be needed early to reduce the risk of scarring from nodular lesions. This is Monica Bowen and I'll be discussing large volume breast fat transfer, a procedure achievable entirely under tumescent anesthesia. The author describes how to perform large volume breast fat transfer and its feasibility in dermatology practices. Initially, fat augmentation of the breast was condemned by the American Society of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery in 1987 because of concern of mammographic changes after fat augmentation. But with the newer mammogram imaging and MRI, the society reversed its statement in 2009. The author argues that dermatologists are well equipped to do breast autologous fat transfer entirely under tumescent anesthesia. As this is not a deeper structure, but a more superficial structure that can be safely treated. An advantage is using tumescent anesthesia, the patient is awake, a pitfall though is you are limited by how much lidocaine you can use during the procedure. The author advocates that this is something we should offer to our patients and that dermatologists are well equipped to perform this procedure, especially if they are already doing tumescent anesthesia for liposuction or other procedures. This is Ardalan Minokadi discussing the manuscript Use of Phosphatidylcholine for Correction of Festoons. The authors begin the description of their technique to treat festoons by defining it, which is swelling or excess tissue immediately below the infraorbital rim within the prezygomatic space. Festoons are believed to come from lymphatic stasis and anatomical laxity of dermal attachments which results in fluid retention confined between these periorbital retaining ligaments. The authors discuss surgical and non-surgical options and cite the first manuscript, which demonstrated the cosmetic improvement of these bulging infraorbital skin areas using phosphatidylcholine. And there's no universally advocated treatment, according to the authors, so they present a case of a 41-year-old woman who had festoons treated with phosphatidylcholine at a 2.5% concentration and deoxycholic acid at 1.25% concentration uh, in a before and after that is shown in the manuscript in our journal. They did describe the technique, which involved 
anesthesia and specific injections at different points. Photographs were taken before and after. And the take home point here is that we have a non-surgical alternative to improve what they state are old looking eyes by reducing the volume of festoons. Basic science manuscripts are cited showing that there's intensive fat necrosis that occurs after the injection of phosphatidylcholine followed by an inflammatory process which may help with skin retraction and ultimately lead to the beneficial cosmetic result. This is Isabella Jones reviewing letter on hyaluronic acid fillers, needle contamination by fastidious microorganisms, and risk of complications by Hooper and Rohrer. This is a commentary on storing and reusing hyaluronic acid fillers. The authors mentioned a recent article by Cavallini and colleagues that showed no evidence of microorganism contamination or patient infections in 35 syringes stored at 4 degrees Celsius. Other studies have shown similar results even in syringes stored at room temperature and used up to 14 months after opening. The authors of this letter state that in their practice, filler is saved up to one year or until the expiration date of the filler and stored at room temperature. The, the syringes are capped with sterile needles and prior to use, 0.05 to 0.1 ml of filler is expressed. They report no cases of infection in the past 20 years over hundreds of stored syringes. This is Deirdre Hooper reviewing eyebrow lifting from high-intensity, high-frequency parallel ultrasound beams by first author Jordan Wang and lead author Roy Geronimus. This was a post hoc analysis of a previously published study. So the previously published study established efficacy and safety of this device to improve fine lines and wrinkles. The device is also known as SoftWave and it's a high intensity, high frequency parallel beam ultrasound device. This ad hoc analysis looked at whether the device clinically lifted the eyebrows. So it's been previously reported that an increase of 0.5 millimeters is clinically significant in eyebrow height. And in this study, 100% of the 32 patients achieved this 0.5 millimeter increase and 81% surpassed this threshold. In fact, the mean change in both average and maximum eyebrow height after one treatment was 1.4 millimeters. There are some nice photographs in the paper for your reference. 91% of the treating investigators and 78% of both the treated patients and the blinded investigators rated this change as improved or very much improved. There were no device-related adverse events and no cases of significant pain, erosion, bruising, or other adverse events. The authors reviewed the mechanism of action of the device, which is mainly that thermal injury induces both neocollagenesis and neoelastogenesis, to create dermal remodeling as well as skin tightening. Limitations of the study are that it was a single treatment and limited to 32 patients. Additional prospective studies are needed. This is Megan McLean reviewing the communication Zoom dysmorphia, language and body dysmorphic disorder in the age of social media by T. Gadimi, Evan Ryder, and Catherine Phillips, as well as the related commentary by Patricia Ritchie. Both articles seek to caution the reader regarding the term Zoom dysmorphia and highlight the differences between it and true body dysmorphic disorder, or BDD. 
BDD is a serious psychiatric disorder detailed in the DSM-5 with a high level of risk, including patient suicide, lawsuits, and violence towards practitioners. It is a preoccupation with non-existent or slight defects in physical appearance that causes significant emotional distress and functional impairment. In contrast, Zoom dysmorphia is a phrase coined to highlight a perceived trend of more people seeking cosmetic treatments after scrutinizing their appearance for long periods of time on video conferencing or as a result of more time on social media platforms. While the use of the term dysmorphia may suggest otherwise, Currently, there is no clear link to any underlying psychiatric pathology. Instead, the uptick in interest in cosmetic procedures may be attributed to the known distorting effects of webcams and their effects on self-perception. In most cases, this would not require the treatments outlined for true BDD, but rather uh, warrant a reminder from practitioners of the known distortion of webcams and the pitfalls of self-comparison with manipulated imagery. The authors argue that until this term of Zoom dysmorphia is more clearly defined and any link with psychiatric pathology established through rigorous studies, care should be taken in using this term and suggesting a connection with body dysmorphic disorder. Welcome to Beyond the Digest, offering bonus content covering surgical articles in dermatologic literature outside the peer-reviewed journal, Dermatologic Surgery. Reference the episode description for publication details of the content covered. This is Kate Matosko, and I will be reviewing dermatopathologic features of cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma and actinic keratosis, consensus criteria, and proposed reporting guidelines by first author Rachel Christensen and senior author Murad Alam out of the June issue of the JAD. In this, authors performed a literature review in cross-sectional Delphi process, including an international group of expert dermatopathologists followed by a consensus meeting to develop recommendations regarding the diagnostic criteria, nomenclature, and reporting of AKs and SCCs. The experts did agree on the key dermatopathological features necessary for the diagnosis and reporting of SCCs, AKs, and keratoacanthomas, which they defined further in the article. They agreed on the grading of the degree of cellular differentiation in SCC and the distinction between well, moderately, and poorly differentiated tumors. They agreed on the use of immunohistochemistry in poorly differentiated SCCs and the reporting of pathologic features of SCCs and AKs. Importantly, experts did not agree on the definition of bonoid AKs or basosquamous carcinoma, nor on whether a keratoacanthoma is a variant of a well-differentiated SCC. When confirming negative margins at time of most surgery, the panel did not agree on the use of in-office cytokeratin pan-monoclonal antibody immunostaining, but did agree in the utility of high molecular weight cytokeratin staining in some circumstances. Overall, this study aims to improve the communication between and among dermatopathologists and clinicians, which can contribute to improved diagnosis, treatment, and research in this area. This is Yesel Kim, and I'll be reviewing an original investigation in June's JAD called Clinical Factors Associated with Skin Neoplasms in Individuals with Lynch Syndrome in a Longitudinal Observation and Cohort by first author Connie Zong and senior author Matthew Yergelin. 
Lynch syndrome is an autosomal dominant disorder caused by pathogenic germline variants in DNA mismatch repair genes that predisposes individuals to various visceral malignancies. Lynch syndrome carriers with cutaneous sebaceous neoplasms are classified as having Mertoré syndrome. Although skin neoplasms are well-known manifestations of Lynch syndrome, clinical practice guidelines provide minimal guidance regarding dermatologic management for Lynch syndrome carriers just because of the paucity of data about prevalence and risk factors for such skin neoplasms. Therefore, the authors aim to evaluate the frequency of Lynch syndrome-associated and non-Lynch syndrome-associated neoplasms in confirmed Lynch syndrome carriers and evaluate the specific clinical factors associated with the development of skin neoplasms in Lynch syndrome carriers. This was a retrospective study looking at individuals who had confirmed pathogenic germline variants in MLH1, MSH2, MSH6, PMS2, and EPCAM that were recruited from between 2000 and 2020 at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. 607 individuals with Lynch syndrome were included in the cohort. 21% of Lynch syndrome carriers had any skin neoplasms, including 9% with Lynch syndrome-associated skin neoplasms, 15% with non-Lynch syndrome-associated skin neoplasms, and 3% with both. 58% had a documentation of a prior dermatologic evaluation. Lynch syndrome carriers with skin neoplasms had no history of Lynch syndrome-associated visceral malignancies. The most common type of skin neoplasms was basal cell carcinoma, then sebaceous adenoma, and then squamous cell carcinoma. For sebaceous adenomas, epitheliomas, and keratoacanthomas, the most common anatomic location was the face, while for sebaceous carcinomas, the most common location was the trunk. Lynch syndrome-associated skin neoplasms were significantly associated with male sex, increasing age, white race, MLH1 pathogenic germline variant, MSH2 or EPCAN pathogenic germline variants, and personal history of non-Lynch syndrome skin neoplasms. The limitations of the study is that it is a single institution observational study and that there is demographic homogeneity. In conclusion, skin neoplasms are common in individuals with Lynch syndrome, and these authors identified clinical factors associated with Lynch syndrome and non-Lynch syndrome-associated skin neoplasms. Furthermore, findings highlight gaps in dermatologic care for Lynch syndrome carriers, with 42% having had no documented care with a dermatologist. Skin neoplasms were seen in Lynch syndrome carriers as young as age 25, suggesting that surveillance should begin early in adulthood. Furthermore, given the high overall prevalence of skin neoplasms, all Lynch syndrome carriers should consider regular dermatologic surveillance as part of routine preventative Lynch syndrome care. This is Elizabeth Cusick reviewing the research article entitled Comparison of Dermatologist Physicians Surgical Efficacy Using Handed Matched Versus Handed Unmatched Needle Drivers, a pilot study by first author Dr. Glycorn and senior author Dr. Joseph. While most surgical instruments do not express handedness, needle drivers do. During training, right-handed instruments are often the only ones available, forcing left-handed surgeons to train with instruments that do not match their dominant handedness. Because left-handed instruments are rarely provided, most left-handed physicians have had little to no exposure in using a handed match needle driver. Authors hypothesized in the study that using handed match needle drivers will improve the ease, use, precision, and efficiency 
for surgeons. A pilot, this was a pilot study evaluating the efficiency of dermatology residents and attending physicians using handed matched versus handed unmatched needle drivers. Each participant completed three suturing tasks with their dominant hand using both a left and right-handed needle driver. A total of 18 participants were enrolled in the study. There were no statistically significant differences that were noted between demographics of left and right-handed groups. On average, participants were 20% more efficient in performing running superficial sutures, 18% more efficient at interrupted sutures, and 15% more efficient at buried interrupted sutures when using their handed match needle driver. Therefore, this study showed that handed match instruments are more efficient for physicians and trainees. Based on the study, we believe that providing handed matched instruments to trainees and pr practicing physicians would be helpful to their success and efficiency in practice, including improving quality, surgical safety, ease of use, precision, and cost effectiveness. This is Elizabeth Cusick reviewing the brief report in JAMA Dermatology titled Differences in Merkel Cell Carcinoma Presentation and Outcomes Among Racial and Ethnic Groups by first author Dr. Mosin and senior author Dr. Burnell. The article begins by providing the background that racial and ethnic differences in skin cancer outcomes are understudied. Delineating these differences in Merkel cell carcinoma is necessary to better understand this rare disease. The objective of this study was to determine how Merkel cell presentation and outcomes differs across racial and ethnic groups. This was a retrospective cohort study that included patients diagnosed with Merkel cell carcinoma and followed up from 2000 through 2018 in 18 population-based cancer registries of the National Cancer Institute's SEER database. In this cohort study of 9,557 patients with Merkel cell carcinoma, racial and ethnic differences in Merkel cell carcinoma-specific survival were evaluated, controlling for age, sex, stage, site, income, and diagnosis year. Patients were disproportionately white at close to 90%. Five-year Merkel cell carcinoma-specific survival differed by race and ethnicity, with Hispanic patients having improved survival compared with white patients. And while not statistically significant from white patients, black patients having the lowest survival at 63.4%. Hispanic and black patients were less likely to present with a primary site of a head and neck more so than white patients. Black patients also presented more often than white patients with advanced disease at diagnosis. In this cohort study, there were differences between racial and ethnic groups in observed Merkel cell carcinoma outcomes and disease characteristics. Further investigations are warranted to identify causes for the observed differences in presentation and survival. Hi, this is Harrison Wynn reviewing the article, Immunotherapy for Keratinocyte Cancers. Part one, immune-related epidemiology, risk factors, pathogenesis, and immunotherapy management of keratinocyte cancers by first author Romy Neuner and senior author Ann Chang. The important role of the immune system in the surveillance and control of keratinocyte cancers, namely squamous and basal cell carcinomas, is increasingly understood as new immunotherapies have recently become available.
As the field of immunotherapy is rapidly evolving, this review synthesized key concepts and highlighted important cellular components within the immune system responsible for attacking keratinocyte cancers. For example, extrinsic causes of immunosuppression that increase keratinocyte cancers include drugs, ultraviolet radiation, and viruses, while intrinsic causes of immunosuppression that increase keratinocyte carcinoma risk include hematologic malignancy and chronic wounds. The TLR7 pathway stimulation has been particularly useful for anti-cancer response against keratinocyte cancers, which is evidenced by the clinical activity of amiquimod. Another major breakthrough in the field happened with the discovery that programmed cell death 1 or PD-1 pathway inhibition promotes immune recognition of keratinocyte carcinomas, and drugs that inhibit this pathway are useful against advanced keratinocyte cancers. PD-1 inhibitors for basal cells and, uh, and squamous cells need to be studied prospectively in special populations with immunosuppression to better understand their efficacy and safety. Dermatologists will need to monitor for keratinocyte carcinoma response to systemic immunotherapy as well as immune-related adverse effects, and new independent keratinocyte carcinomas can still develop while patients are on systemic immunotherapy for advanced keratinocyte cancers. Overall, patients will seek advice from dermatologists to to help explain why immunotherapies work for keratinocyte carcinomas and whether they might be appropriate for different clinical scenarios. Collaboration with medical colleagues across different disciplines to evaluate keratinocyte cancers for response immunotherapy and early recognition of immune-related adverse effects will help to optimize patient outcomes. Hi, this is Harrison Wynn, reviewing the article, Immunotherapy for Keratinocyte Cancers, Part 2, Identification and Management of Cutaneous Side Effects of Immunotherapy Treatments, by first author Ann Chang and senior author Bernice Kwong. Keratinocyte cancers, specifically cutaneous squamous cell and basal cell carcinomas, can respond to topical, intralesional, or systemic immunotherapies, but cutaneous adverse effects may occur. Understanding these risks, early recognition of these adverse effects, and effective treatment may enable patients to continue their anti-cancer immunotherapies without dose impact. For example, Topical immunotherapy such as amicumod for superficial BCC can lead to pruritus and inflammatory skin disease both within and outside application area. Intralesional oncolytic viruses can result in injection site pain, necrosis and ulceration, and worsening psoriasis. Topical and systemic immunotherapy can be associated with eruptive squamous atypia, which can mimic primary keratinocyte carcinomas. Cutaneous toxicities from immune checkpoint inhibitors uh, for keratinocyte, keratinocyte cancers are common and can have multiple clinical presentations. In studies that include keratinocyte cancer patients on immune checkpoint inhibitors, lichenoid and eczematous cutaneous adverse effects are the most commonly observed. Both pemphigoid and severe psoriasis have also been observed after uh, treatment with immune checkpoint inhibitors. Eruptive squamous atypia has been observed on the extremities after immune checkpoint inhibitors, including in patients with primary cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma. Different types of cutaneous adverse effects from immune checkpoint inhibitors have been associated with different oncologic outcomes in various primary cancer types, and this remains to be determined for keratinocyte carcinoma patients. Cutaneous toxicities can require biopsies to confirm the diagnosis, especially in patients who are not responsive to topical oral steroids, since the selection of biologic drugs depends on accurate diagnosis. 
Management of cutaneous adverse effects after immune checkpoint inhibitors depends on the type and severity of the toxicity. Overall, cutaneous adverse effect characterization and management after immune checkpoint inhibitors in keratinocyte carcinoma patients is a rapidly growing field that needs specific and prospective studies. My name is Amy Green, and I will be reviewing the original article entitled Comparison of the Effects of Skin Microneedling with Cupping Therapy and Microneedling Alone, an experimental study by Dr. Passignolo and senior author Dr. Elmas. For background, microneedling is a technique in which micro holes are created in the skin, which promotes collagen induction, ultimately leading to thickening of the dermis. This is one of the techniques employed to combat the signs of aging, namely the decrease in the thickness of the epidermis and dermis, flattening of the reedy ridges, as well as decrease in collagen 1 and 3, and the ratio of 1 to 3. Although cupping is traditionally used in pain management, it is thought to have similar effects on the skin as negative pressure wound therapy, which leads to an increase uh, of blood flow in the applied area. The hypothesis of this paper is that the synergistic effects of these two modalities would enhance the positive effects of microneedling. This was a preclinical study done in rats, which were divided into five groups, a control group, a single session microneedling group, 15 minutes of cupping therapy added after a single session of microneedling, microneedling applied over a total of three sessions at three-week intervals, and then finally a microneedling with cupping therapy applied over three sessions at three-week intervals. The device used for microneedling was a titanium 540 needle derma roller at one millimeter depth. For the cupping groups, cups were applied after the microneedling session, applying 40 millimeters of mercury of negative pressure for 15 minutes. The rats were then euthanized on day 29 and skin specimens were obtained for assessment of the epidermis and dermis in terms of thickening as well as for staining of collagen type 1 and 3. The epidermal thickness was highest in the single microneedling and cupping session with the lowest being in the single microneedling group alone. There was a statistically significant difference between the single session microneedling cupping group and just the microneedling group as well as the control group and the single session microneedling cupping group, uh, which can be seen in figures two and three. The average dermal thickness was also greatest in the single microneedling and cupping group and lowest in the control group. The differences between the control and the single microneedling cupping group, the control and the three session microneedling cupping group, and between the three microneedling group alone compared to the single microneedling cupping group was statistically significant and seen in figure four. There was no significant difference in the dermal thickness between the single microneedling group and the single microneedling cupping group. In terms of collagen production, a significant increase in type 1 collagen and type 1 to 3 collagen ratio was only seen in the single microneedling group alone. Although cupping did not alter the percent collagen in the the hypothesized way, it did show some benefits in terms of epidermal and dermal thickening. I do think that additional studies testing varied negative pressures, the duration of the pressure, and longer follow-up will be useful in further delineating the benefit of cupping in addition to microneedling for skin rejuvenation. 
Thank you for listening to Derm Surgery Digest, the official podcast of the Dermatologic Surgery Journal. To access these featured articles, author videos, and much more, visit journals.lww.com slash dermatologic surgery. To learn more about the American Society for Dermatologic Surgery, visit asds.net.